0: This is episode 159 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Patterning by Automated Design with Dr. Todd McDevitt. Hey, everyone. We are Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of which, who do you want to hear on the podcast? If you know a researcher that would make a great guest... Then we want to hear your suggestions. Send them to us by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at StemcellPodcast. Today, we have Dr. Todd McDevitt from the Gladstone Institutes. He's on the podcast to talk about his research into engineering 3D multicellular systems that can be used to study principles of stem cell and developmental biology. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up.
1: But first, did you know that you can model arrhythmias and cardiomyocytes derived from human pluripotent stem cells? Well, Dr. McDevitt certainly does. Well, watch Stem Cells On Demand webinar to learn how patient-derived and gene-edited human pluripotent stem cell lines can be used to model cardiac disease in vitro. Visit www.stemcell.com cardio webinar.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to come around to the heart and the roundup, but I'm going to start a little higher up here in the spinal cord. Uh, you know, traumatic spinal cord injury it was one of the major draws. It's a lot of the reason people got interested in regenerative medicine in the first place. It's an it's intractable condition. Uh, of course, spinal cord injury results in the loss of all the, the wiring there that connects the top to the bottom, uh, and effectively transmits the signals between the brain and the body, uh, more than half of all the spinal cord injuries that occur are at the cervical level, and that's bad because that's the most devastating in terms of the neurological impairment, um, complete dependency for self-care, also high mortality rates, and there's very few treatment options. Not much you can do there, uh, right? There's been some you know, treatments, but they're very modest in their efficacy. Of course, enter... The whole notion of cell transplantation—it's a really vivid example. You know, you you break the wire, you can reconnect that that wire and restore all the 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 activity, all the uh, locomotor uh, responsiveness, right? Um, and so, as a, as a whole, I would say that cell transplantation therapies represent the most vivid uh, recovery intervention that people have imagined. Uh, And in the form of neural progenitor cells, that's had actually some modest efficacy, and it's an exciting new approach. Uh, But the degree of functional recovery that's been uh, obtained with these neural progenitor cells has been modest. But there's still a a big draw, right? Because especially the idea that you can get neural progenitor cells from human-induced pluripotent stem cells representing an autologous source, overcoming that immune barrier. That would be a major issue if you had a graft-versus-host or host-versus-graft uh, in the spinal cord. You don't want that. Um, but there's a lot of obstacles to uh, getting these neural progenitor cells in there and working, and a lot of that's really just optimization. And, and a big part of that is you know, making the cells better, making the right type of cells, scaling it up. But a huge part of that is just getting the microenvironment to take up those cells. This hostile microenvironment of an injured spinal cord in the acute phase, it's not very permissive. Um, for engraftment of these neural progenitor cells Uh, and all that mess in there in the spinal cord injury in the in the locus it not only reduces the survival of the transplanted cells but also it kind of twists their differentiation and their connectivity uh, and thus their integration as a whole with the host tissue all right so enter michael g failings Uh, you know i'm sure he's heard the joke before he's restoring the failings (laughs) To uh, people's limbs. Ha ha ha, not so funny. <laughs> not so funny when you're talking to a patient, I guess. Um, but in the current study, his group there, which is at the University of Toronto, they did a lot of things, all right? First, they showed that uh, notch ligands are upregulated in the spinal cord microenvironment. And that was a part of this uh, harsh uh, receptivity or this d- disfavorable environment because it it biases differentiation of the transplanted progenitors towards astrocytes fate. Of course, astrocytes are important for regeneration, but you also need the myelinating oligos, oligodendrocytes, um, and a lot of other neural subtypes that make synaptic connections with the local neural networks, right? So they wanted to try and address that, to try and suppress that increased notch activity, in a screen for relevant factors, uh, you know, translationally relevant things that could be used um, in patients, they uh, hit on GDNF, glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, and then engineered human induced pluripotent stem cell-derived NPCs. They engineered these cells to express and secrete GDNF, uh, and when they transplanted those cells into a rodent model of this cervical spinal cord injury. They show that they demonstrated higher differentiation toward neural fate compared to the controls. They also promoted endogenous tissue sparing, enhanced the electrical integration of the transplanted cells, and all of that resulted in improved neurobehavioral recovery. Um, And then went a little deeper, of course, because you got to these days and showed mechanistically that this is dependent on DLK if they did a CRISPR knockout of DLK in these human IPS-derived NPCs uh, that were also overexpressing GDNF, they found that it reduced the uh, functional recovery. So so they kind of linked this to DLK. So this is like a big study that's, I think, the idea here, it's like driven by mechanism. They first tried to understand what was the problem with the niche, tried to overcome that, Using a engineering approach and then really understood what the basis of the benefit provided by that engineering approach was so Altogether a big story from Michael failings and his group soon to restore the failings to many injured spinal cords. Let's hope (laughs) What do you think of it?
1: Yes, spinal cord injury. I mean, this is um, kind of one of the initial big hopes for the stem cell field right you know back in the day we had the geron trials where we were able to like inject pluripotent stem cells into the spinal cord after uh, traumatic spinal cord injury and it's cool to see people are still working on this because obviously this is something that still needs to be worked on you know obviously after someone has like a car accident or some sort of traumatic spinal cord injury it's really tough to restore that motor function afterwards so everything helps kind of on that topic I mean is it kind of well established now that we're shifting towards iPS derived cell types like these neural progenitor cells for the transplantation purposes for for treating spinal cord injury like as opposed to just using the pluripotent stem cells I know back in the day I think that was the the initial focus was just using the undifferentiated cells as your cell source for these, uh, cell therapy purposes. I mean, I guess that makes sense, right? You want to use a more targeted cell type with these like NPCs or oligodendrocytes. Um, is that kind of how the field has shifted? You think?
0: Hey, listen, Arun, this is not my field, but I, I can remember, you know, you can track the, the field. I think kind of writ large by the trials and, and tribulations of these, these spinal cord, uh, science stories you know how Geron kind of ran at it and then i think the early trials showed that maybe it was a bit premature and you had some of these cystic growths in the spinal cord and and then i think the reality dawned upon us that these are live cell products that are going to go in there and do some stuff so yeah i think we've shifted gears a lot of gears we've gone up to about fifth gear here now and uh, maybe we need to downshift, maybe we need to invent a new gear or something. But I think the bottom line is, is that we're being more careful. I think that, that the, the challenge, as you're alluding to there, is that here you kind of need to just plant the seeds of the product and let them grow in situ, right, to make that connection uh, versus getting a, a kind of pre-organized, uh, you know, scaffolded type thing. I mean, this is something maybe we could uh, talk to uh, Todd about is is what what kind of what what's what's the status of uh, of spinal cord injury and therapies for it? Are, are we are we moving uh, more towards cell or engineering based approaches? I don't know, Arun, but I think the exciting thing here is uh, that they're they're finally I think on on the precipice of realizing that that those like you said the vivid illustration of the power of stem cell therapy is these. the the people walking again, they'd show the rats, you know, recovering function. So as soon as we can, uh, you know, fill that out a little bit, I think we can really capture the public's imagination and get everybody on board.
1: I mean, this is definitely something that's going to be a target for CIRM 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever, you know, 0.0 is down the road. Um, I mean, this is this is one of the big reasons why we actually got into, you know, stem cell therapy and stem cell biology in the first place was to address spinal cord injuries. So cool to see a more targeted approach and definitely a lot more work that needs to be done. Moving on up in the neural system, moving from the spinal cord up to the brain. We're going to talk about glioblastoma, which is, of course, a really aggressive form of brain cancer. It's up there with like pancreatic cancer for some of the worst mortality rates when it comes to, to cancer in general. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to improve the prognosis, you know, improve the uh Survival for for folks who have glioblastoma. So glioblastoma spreads rapidly through the brain and it's really tough to eradicate and typically Leads to death within one to two years of diagnosis So we're always trying to figure out some more more powerful and more targeted therapies Even you know kind of relating it back to the spinal cord story, you know We want to focus on more targeted therapies, but really hasn't been too successful so far and in part because it's really hard to study glioblastoma in a lab setting. They're really aggressive and tenacious in patients, these like glioblastoma cells, but it's tough to keep them alive in the lab. And in particular, when you actually try to study glioblastoma in mice, only like 5 to 10% of human tumors actually end up surviving transplantation. So maybe there's like an evolutionary aspect as to why mice aren't great model systems for glioblastoma. So now we have Aparna Baduri and an Elizabeth DeLulo from the UCSF, Eli and Edith Broad Center for Regenerative Medicine. They are postdocs in the lab of Arnold Kriegstein. And they have for the first time succeeded in keeping a diverse array of glioblastomas alive in the lab and, get this, using brain organoids, so IPS-derived brain organoids. What they're able to do is actually seed these glioblastoma cells in IPS-derived brain organoids and actually keep them alive nearly 100% of the time. So that's amazing. That means you can finally study the full spectrum of glioblastomas in the lab, as opposed to using these mouse models, which aren't, you know, super effective. They also created an atlas of glioblastomas taken from surgical treatment of, you know, human patients. Uh, This is a paper actually that was just published in Cell Stem Cell. And So they cataloged the distinct cell types in using single cell, and then they actually did an evolutionary study, and they're actually able to find that the glioblastomas don't originate from a single cell type, and what other researchers have called like a glioblastoma stem cell, but actually arise from multiple different kinds of seed cells, including one that actually looks a lot like... A neuronal stem cell that the Kriegstein lab discovered like a decade ago, which they called the outer radial glia cell, or ORG. And the evolutionary aspect of this is that these ORG cells are a lot more numerous in humans and primates as opposed to like other mammals like mice. And that actually may be a reason why the mice model, the mouse model for glioblastoma, isn't that great. And these cells normally disappear as the brain matures during development. But these results that they're actually able to show in the cell stem cell paper suggest that they might actually reappear in glioblastoma, so in in adult tissues that actually have this type of cancer, and maybe they could actually help the tumor's ability to grow and spread through the brain. And the fact that these ORG cells are numerous, again, you know that they're numerous in primates but lacking in mice might explain why the glioblastomas usually take hold and spread in human tissue, which is why these human iPSC-derived organoids were super helpful. So I think it's, it's a really useful study on, in two aspects. One, of course, there's the whole single-cell approach, which, of course, everybody's doing. You've got a paper coming up. You're going to talk about this and on the next paper. Uh, everybody's using single-cell for whatever application. But I thought the really exciting part of this study was the fact that you can actually grow glioblastoma cells for long-term culture in organoids, which is actually, I think, a really neat application of organoids. So you're basically just seeding these iPSC-derived brain organoids with some glioblastoma cells, and they're able to grow. And you can actually use this as an in vitro model, a reproducible in vitro model, really for the first time. So I think it's a really powerful study with a lot of downstream applications for you know, studying glioblastoma.
0: Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I, I... You know, that's the big idea. I think that that gets it into a high-impact journal like Cell Stem Cell is this idea of using cultured cells as a as a system to culture cells, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the also this novel, I think, uh, cell population that we we can't even see in the in the models that we're using. So it's a, a real uh, watershed. And and I guess the question is: so when you can in, envision and study these these uh outer radial glial cells do they have factors they have targets there that are uniquely expressed in those are going to allow us then to then come with the more classic drug-based approach to targeting these cells do you know
1: yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I think that's inevitably the next step is maybe through their single cell analysis, they can identify some specific factors that are specific to these ORG cells that you might be able to to target them specifically as opposed to like, you know, other cell types that you definitely don't want to target in the rest of the brain. I mean, I think that's part of the issue with glioblastoma, right? It's a brain cancer. And anytime that you're trying to target cells in the brain, that's that's risky Um, Because there's a bunch of other good stuff that you don't want to get rid of, right?
0: Yeah, yeah glio what a killer Uh, We hate it the other major killer I got to talk about now in addition to a little bit of single-cell is the heart heart disease is a a Major killer more than glio the most you could argue also getting back to the whole spinal cord injury uh, Discussion we were just having another vivid example of the power of regenerative medicine that has yet to be realized and of course That's because the heart is another complex organ. I think people always focus on the cardiomyocyte, right? You have a heart attack, the cardiomyocyte becomes scar, and then the engine of the heart is kind of diminished, uh, and uh, you get reduced function, which is degenerative, right? But there's a lot more cell types in the heart. In fact, cellular diversity in the heart uh, is directly related to cardiovascular disease. There's been recent studies showing that macrophages, for example facilitate electrical conduction in the heart, and they have important roles in aging and also in in myocardial infarction. This is in the mouse, but you can imagine. A lot of these things are are conserved uh, in human, unlike the outer radial glia you were just talking about. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's still a problem, again, uh, uh, alluding back to what you were saying, there's limited availability. Mouse is all well and good, but we don't necessarily understand the uh, heterogeneity in the human heart and that's because uh, there's limited availability. It's not accessible. It's not accessible. Uh, it's not available because, you know, humans, that they, the hearts are in the humans. So it's, they're hard to get. Um, and there's technical difficulties not just in getting the hearts from the living humans because you don't want to do that, but also isolating the cells from the heart uh, and getting good quality cells that you can sequence is tough because they're fragile. You know, cardiomyocytes, you know this, Arun. I'm in your space right now. I'm all over your stuff right now. How does mm-hmm. that feel? Um, <laughs> not great, but
1: go on. <laughs>
0: <laughs> not great, not great. Well, we'll see when I'm done. Uh, the, the, the bottom line here is that we need to have better resolution out of, out of the heart. Enter the single cell idea, and Sheng Sao uh, Hu at the Chinese Academy of Medical Science uh, the, their group, they ha- came up with this unique isolation procedure. It's a, two, it's a t- two-pronged approach, which is this like soft cardiomyocyte-enriched digestion, which yields the cardiomyocytes that are good quality and purity, but keeps them happy. And then the, your conventional enzymatic digestion, which gets all the other cell types out of there, um, non-cardiomyocyte cell types. Uh, so they use that procedure to, to do single cell seek and analyze cells from several health conditions. And I think this is the key here. They got normal heart. They got uh, 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 heart post-MI, uh, heart failure, a failing heart. Uh, and they get heart tissue with partial recovery after treatment with the LVAD, the Left Ventricular Assist Device, right? And doing comparative analysis of the atrial and ventricular cells, they found, of course, as you would expect, that there's major differences. Uh, There's pronounced inter- and intra- compartmental cardiomyocyte heterogeneity. So the cardiomyocytes both within the atrium, ventricle, are different between each other, also within each compartment. Uh, And there's also compartment-specific utilization of these non-cardiomyocyte cell types, uh, which are used as kinda these hubs for cell communication. Um, And, that also showed that the cardiomyocyte contractility and metabolism are the most prominent, uh, most prominently correlated with the change in heart function that you see in a failing heart or in a recovery LVAD condition. Uh, And there's a lot of engagement of these non-cardiomyocyte cells in in regulating the behavior of the cardiomyocytes. And this is best illustrated, I think, in this paper when they use these ACKR1-positive endothelial cells, right? So they show that there's a unique subpopulation of endothelial cells within these compartments, and then they purify these endothelial cells and inject them into a heart post-MI and show that they improve uh, cardiac function after the injury. So I think that's the big home run at the end of this. This is a Nature Cell Biology paper. They do a ton of descriptive stuff with the Cell Seek. I mean the single-cell seek, but ultimately that converges on this, you know, experimental uh, demonstration of the importance of the non-cardiomyocyte cells, particularly endothelial cells, in um, targeting uh, heart disease or improving, mitigating the downstream sequelae of of heart disease. So I think a cool paper. Of course, we have to do one or two single cell seek stories on every roundup. So I chose that one, (laughs) because it gave me the opportunity to also dip into your specialty, Arun. You know,
1: if young Irv Weissman was a time traveler, and he time traveled from back in the day to 2020, I think he might like, I don't know, I wonder what he would think about everybody in stem cell biology doing either A, organoids or B, single cell seek. He'd be like, what, what is going on with my field? Why is everyone focused on these two technologies? I don't know. They, well, we're focused on the two technologies because they're super powerful, right? They're super powerful. They're accessible. They're getting cheaper. And you can use them for a bunch of different applications like studying brain biology, studying glioblastoma, studying the heart. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, it's another single-cell heart paper that's out there. I mean, there's, this is focusing on heart failure. Other papers have focused on congenital heart disease. I think there was a big-time Nature paper that came out uh, not too long ago from UCSF that was looking at single-cell um, analysis of heart development. So, you know, you know, every, you're people are teasing this apart from every single angle. I think the tricky thing about this paper is that heart failure is kind of heterogeneous, right? Like there's no, it's almost like cancer, right? There's no two identical forms of like glioblastoma or two identical forms of whatever type of cancer. Heart failure is heterogeneous. And, you know, we were talking about this offline. Anytime you're doing single seat analysis, like you're doing it, I'm doing it, you have to take into account that heterogeneity, not only heterogeneity from your prep, like, you know, your prep from week to week, but also the heterogeneity of, you know, the, the disease that you're studying, no two diseases are identical. And so that's something I think we have to consider here.
0: Yeah, I think you nailed it. Uh, it's, it's one confounder on top of another and probably another two below that. So, yes, I think you have to be very careful when you interpret this. I'm looking at it now. 21,422 cells were profiled. I mean, not for nothing, all respect. But as, as, as the field moves forward, I feel like you got to do a lot more. We're at the stage where you got to have such a robust cell number just to have um, – because it's not fresh anymore. It's not new anymore. You need to have a, a data set that, as you said, can water down a bit that heterogeneity and, and provide – I know we're talking about, like, tens of thousands of individual N equals transcriptomes, yeah? But there's also a lot more noise there. And, I mean, to your point on, like, the surfeit of, of single-cell stories out there, if I were I have a little single-cell story in the, in, that I'm cooking, and my advice to everybody, including myself, is get it out to the editors now before it all goes away, because I'm sure they're having meetings where they're just sitting around talking about how they have to have a few less single-cell-seek stories that are so high-profile, because, I mean, fatigue really ruined fatigue.
1: Pretty much. I mean, that's what happened with, I guess, the IPS field back in the day when it came to disease modeling. You know, I think, uh, I remember 10 years ago, you could have a paper that just was, oh, I made an IPSC or patient-specific IPSC from one person who had like long QT syndrome. And that's going to get you like a nature paper. And these days, it's just like, that's that's not going to happen, right? You have to have so many different cell lines from so many different people. But that's how technology works. And, you know, technology evolves and I think it's a good thing, you know. I think it's good for everybody to kind of hop aboard the train for for single seek and single cell seek, and another technology that you know our guest today is an expert on, you know, engineering heart tissues, is uh, something else that's kind of caught caught uh, caught the eye of a lot of folks in the IPS derived cardiomyocyte field, especially, uh, which is of course you know the field that I work in. Uh, the next paper I'm going to talk about and the last paper for our roundup is in Nature Communications. It's coming from the lab of Leo Gepstein, overseas in Israel. First author is Idit Goldfrock. The title of the paper is Generating Ring-Shaped Engineered Heart Tissues from Ventricular and Atrial Human Pluripotent Stem Cell-Derived Cardiomyocytes. So as I was alluding to, it's engineered heart tissues. Everybody's shifting, From two-dimensional culture to three-dimensional culture, of course, there's pros and cons of 2D versus 3D culture. I think, you know, us here at the podcast, we've kind of been harping that, oh, everybody's shifting towards it. But, you know, I'm still using two-dimensional IPS cardiomyocyte culture because you can't beat the scalability, right? If you're trying to do high-throughput experiments, it's a lot easier to, to scale up 2D cell culture, at least for now, right? So in the iPS cardiomyocyte field over the last 5ish years or so there's been a refinement in the differentiation protocols. We can really make cardiomyocytes pretty easily these days from iPSCs. You throw in some either growth factors or small molecules and you can make billions and billions of these cells in a two-dimensional format. Of course, cardiomyocytes as we kind of alluded to in the single cell study that we just, you know, talked about, cardiomyocytes are heterogeneous and There's atrial cardiomyocytes, which compose the the atrial chambers of the heart. And then the ventricular cardiomyocytes in the the ventricles. And they're different when it comes to their gene expression, when it comes to their ion channels that are actually expressed. And this is important because if you want to study a disease that's specific to either the atria or the ventricle, you want to use either atrial or ventricular IPS-derived cardiomyocytes. And the differentiation protocols have progressed in a way that we can actually now produce atrial or ventricular cardiomyocytes, typically by modulating some uh, growth factors like BMP4, like active in A, uh, also by modulating retinoic acid. Uh, if you throw retinoic acid in there, you have a shift towards more atrial cardiomyocyte fate. And so this is a paper that's actually building on that. They're building on the idea that now you can make these atrial or ventricular cardiomyocytes, and they're generating these next-gen engineered heart tissues from from these specific atrial or ventricular cardiomyocytes. They're able to kind of reproduce these tissues pretty effectively. You you can uh, make them again and again using a scaffolded format. The important thing about this paper is they're able to show that The drugs that are able to target specifically atrial cells are targeting atrial cells and affecting the function of these atrial rings, but not the ventricular rings and vice versa. So that's important to show that, yes, we can have a cell type specific effect of these drugs, even in an IPS cardiomyocyte setting, because there's always the idea of like, oh, are these cells mature enough for whatever you want to do downstream? And at least when it comes to drug discovery and drug screening, yeah, it looks like for cardiac drug discovery and drug screening and atrial versus ventricular populations, it's it's doing a pretty good job. And so why use like an engineered heart tissue as opposed to like a two-dimensional tissue if it's not as scalable, right? Well, the big thing is when it comes to the actual function of the tissue – it's thought that it can actually elicit a stronger force output, and this is actually something that they demonstrated here as well. So it's a, uh, it's a relatively straightforward paper. You know, you, They made atrial versus ventricular cardiomyocytes into these ring structures. And they're able to show that these rings are more effective than 2D culture in terms of eliciting force output, but most importantly, that they can have a drug-type drug, drug type specific effect. So atrial drugs are affecting the atrial rings, and the ventricular drugs are affecting the ventricular rings. I think, at least for the iPS cardiomyocyte field, this is the way we have kind of have to go our differentiations right now are kind of like a gamish of different atrial ventricular nodal populations. And if you really want to study a chamber-specific defect or a chamber-specific disease, you have to, be able, you have, to have a more targeted approach. And so I'm glad that they're taking that and integrating it with a, a three-dimensional construct as well. I think it's, a, it's a useful technology.
0: I'm totally with you on that. I'm with you on the idea that you really need to have a clear and, and well-resolved and singular... Defined population, so you know what you're looking at. But I have to say, I, I, the rationale here is a little bit elusive for me because of a couple of things. One, I think you touched on it and addressed the question that I had first, which was that why, when you're looking at like monotypic drug screening, like the whole premise is drug screening. So why are you doing that? Why do you need to go out to 3D and the force output? I buy that, but the real underlying criticism I have, I'm not even criticism. All respect. Like, I couldn't do it, and i worked in the heart. I had to quit. But the thing that I think <laughs> fundamentally we need to revise our thinking is that they, they hit the one idea, which is like, yeah, if we're going to do good direct targeting, we need to understand the thing in doing the right force output, and we need to understand what cells are in there and have them be just like they are in the heart. But I think the real thing that's lost there is that when you talk about, you know, using something for, for screening, drug screening, toxicology, whatever, I think that a, a major lesson that we've learned is that the cardiomyocytes don't look like that in the heart because they have all the non-cardiomyocyte cell types that I just talked about in that single cell paper that act as communication hubs, that as, act as like conductors, that act as angiocrine or paracrine, you know, factories that are supplying all these factors. So I think that the idea that you can do any kind of screening that is clinically relevant, quote unquote, as they come out saying, I think it's a little bit um, undermined by the idea that you don't have the complexity of that heart, all those heart non cardiomyocyte cell types in there. Even though, in all respect, they got a nice clean atrial ventricular, that's a, a very impressive. I think we need to take it to the next level.
1: No, I agree with you. I mean, and there are groups out there that are focused on integrating those non-cardiomyocytes into their preps because I, I actually totally agree with you. I think you know those non-myocytes have such an important paracrine effect on the cardiomyocytes in terms of modulating their function that you kind of have to have them. You have to build them into your prep. Um, so I think that's definitely an issue. And I come back to this the scalability idea. You know, until these things are scalable and until you can actually generate like something like this in a 1536 well format that you can use for really high throughput drug screening, I'm inclined to still use the two-dimensional approach. But then, then again, I'm not a tissue engineer. So
0: yeah, but maybe you will be one day. I know you're working on this, by the way, you're being a bit modest, but you're doing some of these <laughs> complex organ shift. You go, boy, you go. You know, talking about scalability, we got to talk for a second about stem cell technologies. If you want to scale your product, right, you want to take your human pluripotent stem cell cultures further, you got to use M-Teaser Plus from Stem Cell Technologies. It's the most widely published medium for feeder-free human ES and IPS cell maintenance and is now formulated for enhanced performance and versatility. M-Teaser Plus reduces medium acidosis, for more stable cultures all weekend long, to learn more, visit www.stemcell.com M-T-E-S-R-P-L-U-S.
1: All right, folks, for this week on the stem cell podcast for the interview segment, we have Dr. Todd McDevitt, who is a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, Department of Bioengineering and Therapeutic Sciences, as well as a senior investigator at the Gladstone Institutes. Dr. McDevitt's research focuses on the engineering technologies that direct the differentiation and morphogenesis of stem cells into functional tissue constructs, and he's working to create human tissue models that can be used to study development and new approaches to treat multiple diseases that afflict the cardiovascular, neurological, immunological, and musculoskeletal systems. So, Dr. McDevitt, thank you for joining us here on the Stem Cell Podcast.
2: Thanks. No, it's great to join you guys. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, no problem. So why don't you, uh, why don't we dive right into it? Why don't you give sure. us a little overview of what your lab does, kind of in your own words?
2: Sure. No, you gave a great uh, intro discussion or overview of that. Uh, I'd say it's very simplistically, our lab's main goal is to really try and exploit the uh, ability of stem cells to form tissues. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that they can give rise to multiple cell types, that as these cells give rise or start to differentiate, there's still this mystery around how they can talk talk to and communicate with each other and seemingly elicit these developmental-like programs so that you start to see actual, at least rudimentary elements of tissues forming. Um, and this is something that I remember being awed by early on when it was sort of just happening very spontaneously and seeing little glimpses of it. And Engineering Hat was on and said, well, why does this have to happen just once in a while? And why is this seemingly, you know... Uncontrolled. There's got to be some principles here. If we understand the principles, then we could make this into something. And that was what really I think was one of those uh, aha kinds of moments for me when I was like, "Oh, well, this could be cool. We could we could study this and try to do this." Um, it was also extremely naive. <laughs> and f- 15 years into it, <laughs> I still look back and say, "Yeah, we're not. How much farther ahead are we than that that moment when we saw it?" But I think I think we are at a much better point, and, and we as uh, not just us the lab, but the field. And that has really uh, empowered uh, the things that we're doing now, and sort of again, it justified that, like that little snippet, that little glimpse of what was possible. How it has really started to broaden into something that a lot more people are interested in as well. It wasn't just you know me trying to to find my little niche as a you know what am I going to start a lab around kind of thing, but it, it was actually something that I think really resonates uh, very broadly with you know not just tissue engineering folks, a field I came from, but now especially developmental biologists. Hmm.
0: Yeah, uh, Todd, you said you were wowed by this early on. Let's go back. We're having a bit of a reunion here. Arun, uh, you and myself, all Duke alumni. Yes. Uh, And I don't know about you, Arun, but when I was there, they pretty much locked you in the stacks of uh, Perkins Library once you declared your major as (laughs) BME. So I don't know. Maybe it's cooled off a bit since then, but I doubt it. I I mean, the BME majors I knew, though, the ones I was acquainted with, they knew exactly what they wanted from day one. Todd, I don't know about you. Uh, I'll ask. Uh, when you made that fateful choice and they locked you up in Perkins, yep. <laughs> was this the career path you envisioned and or hoped for, or has it kind of gone off on its own path?
2: <laughs> totally not envisioned at all, is the honest answer. So I was a, I was a BME and a, an a EE double major. And, and the only thing is I look on sort of the arc from where I started to where I am now is that, you know, many years later that those fundamental principles, especially of Electrical circuits and and things that operate normally in the non-biologicals. How that you know relating those properties back to systems that are act, we're actively studying and working with in the lab. Uh, no, my path was very cir- not linear and I tell people that all the time that that's a common thing I've seen in a lot of people's uh, uh, interesting career trajectories. Is you know you can try to have this idea, but ch- follow the science, follow where your passion is, and that was certainly true for me because I the EE part was valuable. But I also learned I was not passionate about it. I didn't want to do ultrasound sensors. I didn't want to, those things just didn't excite me. Um, I got a little bit of exposure to like materials. I didn't see any cells as an undergrad. I don't think most undergrads at that point did or could. There weren't labs really that that were as readily accessible. And so it it wasn't until graduate school that I was starting in a biomaterials tissue engineering. That happened to then uh, connect through collaborations with two great um, uh, colleagues or, or advisors who've you know become colleagues, Chuck Murray and Steve Hauschka, uh, really folks that are were pioneering. Um, well, Steve was already a legend at that point; he was at the latter stage of his career. Chuck was kind of the early stages, but the two of them, I really give credit for really introducing me to the to stem cells, both from skeletal muscle, uh, which was what Steve's lab focused on, and then just starting to get into embryonic or pluripotent in Chuck's lab. So that kind of was how I got interested in these and was starting to go down a much more cellular than molecular kind of biological path. Um, And now have sort of, I'd say, come back a a bit again with sort of physiology and how can we really try to, uh, you know, really make sure we're studying that in these systems to make sure they're relevant. They're not just cool, but they're relevant.
1: (laughs) So kind of like you were just talking about, you know, there's a whole bunch of new technologies that emerged kind of after you graduated from Duke, right? So like the whole IPS field was, you know, came about in the mid 2000s, right? And of course, you were able to, to jump on that train and work with, you know, Dr. Chuck Murray, who's of course a pioneer when it comes to all things human cardiac IPSCs, right? And so your lab actually recently had a pretty cool paper in cell systems that we actually covered on the podcast not too long ago about about IPSCs and using machine learning to kind of predict how pluripotent stem cells and IPSCs can organize in vitro. And kind of at a, a simple level, you're able to direct the organizations of different subpopulations of PSCs, right? Yeah. So if I remember, you can make like a bullseye pattern and some other types of patterns as well. So yeah. could you talk a little bit more about, about that work and how you think, how, how might machine learning be able to take stem cell biology and stem cell culture to the next level?
2: Yeah, no, this this was, uh, thank you guys again for bringing this up for highlighting that because this was um, certainly one of those like labors of love that started in a kind of really cool way between a student in my group who was a developmental stem cell biology graduate student, and um, but we were part of a larger NSF center that was uh, uh, focused around multicellular engineering principles, and so we've been working in that for, that center is just coming to a close now after 10 years, but I was introduced to a uh, one of the other investigators from Boston University, Colin Belta, and his group is uh, is is AI machine learning. I, you know, when I visited their lab, they have a drone cage. That's that's they don't have any cells or anything. They they fly drones in a cage to learn swarming algorithms. That, that's their lab. Hmm. So it's about as different of a, of a physical environment as you can get. Um, but he had one student in particular. He had several students, but one in particular, Demarcus. And Demarcus had been part of the center and part of the discussions. He became really intrigued with these and saw some of the parallels. So when I first suggested to Ashley, who, you know, hey, I want to ta- have you talk with this guy and we should talk about this collaboration, I watched her eyes go. Are you crazy? Like, what are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, and but what ha- what happened was great. Was the two of them then started with almost weekly calls after the collaboration started, and it was was Ashley taking doing data experiments first sharing that data with uh, DeMarcus, who then was doing computational modeling to validate that the system that he was gonna try and use to to in it, to make this computation or to do things in silico could work. Once they got that part going, then we said, okay, so, you know, Ashley sees these cool things and once in a while we're like, that one's cool and that one's cool. Oh, those other ones we ignore. And uh, we started to realize, well, there's like, it, there are literally almost infinite possibilities depending on how you do these experiments. And, and that was what we were like, well, that's not gonna be feasible. But if we have a model and if we have enough computational power, then we should be able to start to do this. So it really started going back to if we had, control over very specific molecular mechanisms, which is what we had in this case using a CRISPR-I system. So we could silence any gene of interest, and we've been already working with that, and Ashley's first paper was really a demonstration of that. The multicellular organization that came out was a bit surprising when we saw that there were some cool features. If you knocked, say, in one case, a cell adhesion molecule like E-cadherin down, the cells clustered, and, and we thought at first, based on our literature, they might just migrate away. You know, you, they're, they're detached, they're not adhesive. But that wasn't what happened. They just formed these cluster island patterns. And when we knocked down something in the cytoskeleton that's also related, obviously, to how cells move, and in this case, uh, ROCK1, so something that's, that's responsible for actin cytoskeleton, well, those cells now seem to be either pushed out or migrated out on these colonies. So we saw two behaviors with two different genes that exhibited these phenotypes. And that was when we started to say, well, we could knock down more genes. We could knock them down different times. We can knock down. We can do different proportions. And so that was what sort of uh, uh, stimulated the whole project. And in the bigger sense, then after they did the first couple, or they did the model validation. Marcus and one of his other colleagues ran all these studies and basically came back with you know hits almost like you would say from a drug screen these are the conditions you should try these are the ones that yield a pattern because they had this quantitative algorithm so they could even evaluate and say these patterns are better than the other patterns in terms of how uh, stark they are or not they're not just like sort of faint they're like really clear um, and so when Ashley got that information it was very clear instead of running millions of experiments she only had to run like a lot of replicates of a single experiment, and and then we took a look at the results, and it was definitely one of those moments where when she brought it in, I thought, no, this can't, it can't work that well. Hmm. Like the picture you showed me looks exactly like what Demarcus was saying hmm. it should be at the time. Like, Come on, all right. So we had to call them, and said, okay, this is this cool, is good, but if we're gonna do this. We're gonna have to look at a couple more patterns. We're gonna have to like really test this different ways. And so, And they kept doing that for a while, and it just kept coming back, and the story just kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So um, the limits, the caveats of it is that, you know, we are only looking at two genes in that paper. Um, And certainly something reviewers brought up is, you know, how broadly, you know, you you have success with one thing, and then immediately people's tendency is, well, how broadly is this applicable? How many is it? Well, you know, that takes a lot longer to to test all those permutations, but um, it was pretty clear to us and from this that, you know, there's a solid basis there. So for follow-up work, that's exactly the kind of stuff we want to do. We think, you know, we've validated these. There's other genes. There's other perturbations we can make. There's a lot of other mechanisms by which cells use to communicate and 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 talk with each other and form uh, patterns. There's these uh, great recent examples from, you know, that many people have been able to replicate of just showing that changes in, uh, uh in radial patterns. So work by Sigia and Brivanlou that have shown this. That under morphaging conditions, and there's still a lot of debate about what's the exact mechanism that's regulating those processes. So while we see these these cool patterning-like features that sort of set up development from the outset, um, there's still often debate, or there's still so, there's so many layers of complexity that it takes a lot to kind of peel them away and figure out what are the driving forces. And you know, I always use the analogy for engineering, your coarse and fine adjustment knobs. So you wanna know your course knob because you wanna turn that up and down and see how things jump. But you want to have the the ability to also subtly change things and refine it and use your fine adjustment ones. So a lot of times in these systems with stem cells, we we don't know. We say that, you know, the title of the paper is Factor factor X makes stem cells do this. Mm -hmm. Um, But there should be underneath it probably about, you know, 20 bullets of caveats under these conditions for this amount of time and this, Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of things. Because I think everybody that works in the field knows that, you know, that's really where the real test comes from. Many of these things are very context and condition dependent.
0: Yeah, so many variables, so many conditions, infinite infinite permutations, and a major impetus for, you know, establishing, capturing that engineering level understanding, and eventually I think the idea is you can get an engineering level control, like you were saying, the fine versus the coarse knob. Um, But the major impetus for getting that kind of understanding and control over the systems is to make them standardized, right, and reproducible. And that's all a prerequisite, I would say, to therapeutic application. What do you think that's going to look like? There's one kind of end of the spectrum, like the pharma paradigm, right, where every dose is the same, rigorously controlled. And then you have the other end where you have like emerging cell therapies like the CAR-T where every therapy every uh therapeutic or dose is like a one off kind of yeah. um can you talk about what elements of the process as an engineer from your yeah. perspective what elements of the process you th- of each of those kind of paradigms is going to be essential or are the most important to easing the path of these translational uh modalities to uh, a successful uh translation yeah
2: uh, it's a great question, and I'm sure you know comes from motivated by, you know, it's the one that everybody uh, spends a lot of time back of their mind, you know, thinking about, and oftentimes it's not at the forefront of like the discovery type papers, but it's where the hard work comes in because um, so I'd use I guess I I'd go back to the term and use sensitivity, And that is that you know, you change your substrate, you change the cells, you change their genome by looking at different patients. And what we don't know is it's very easy to say, well, Cells differ in their genome, therefore they differ in their response. It's a very linear, I don't call it simplistic, but it's a very sort of discrete. But there's a lot of subtlety there. Yeah, they are. But if you look at it in another sense, if you apply a certain morphogen and they respond largely the same, um, but the amount they respond or the, ti- the timing they respond, then how different are they? And I think that um, for far too long, there's been debates of similarity or difference based on single attributes or features without having a way to sort of take in these multi-parametric things. So, you know, the debate for... So, we referenced human pluripotent uh, iPS cells. And yeah, that was something that, again, was interesting, get, you know, started a lab and at the time I was telling my trainees because they take it for granted now, we only had one type of pluri, pluripotent stem cell at the time. <laughs> and that was ES. So, iPS was, you know... It may have some caveats compared to and then there was a whole series of papers the first one saying well look how similar they are mm-hmm. they differentiate the same they express the genes and then what was the next round of papers <laughs> oh they differ because this one at this chromosome and this does this and the, and the the extent of epigenetic reprogramming is not the same and and therefore the sensitivity of these to differentiation like it was it was generated in that way so when you look at the history it's like this back and forth it was trendy to say they're the same because that's going to get you a paper that came to an extent and then people you had to prove something different or new so you say well they're different and this regard, and you demonstrate, test that feature. But when you step back and look at them, wh- what do they functionally do? Do they turn the same numbers of cells? Do they do that or not? So I think what we appreciate now is that, okay, we have these substrates, and we can generate them from literally anyone pretty readily. And so you have all, now you have this, this, this great you know, ability to do uh, huge, uh, almost like uh, epidemiological types of studies in, in culture and cells. Which ones do you want to do? And when you start to see that there's differences in response, where, where does that come from? Is it because they were all reprogrammed differently, or is it really because their genomes are different? Mm. Um, I tend to look at it as sort of, I guess, a term I know picked up from Chuck in a lot of ways was pragmatic. <laughs> what am I trying to do with these cells, and where am I trying to get, that, get with there? So if I want to look at different, you know, I want to look at genomic diversity, then I want that. Mm. If I want to look at mechanisms of disease modeling, then I want isogenic controls. Um, and I think that that gets kind of lost sometimes, or maybe amongst like, sometimes paper reviewers, but like grant reviewers, you just have to be very clear about what it is and not lose sight of that big picture. I think the goal, going back to it, is is robustness, robustness of systems. And the amazing thing is that you can take a lot of these cells, and if, if they're of the appropriate quality and similar stage, you subject them to an assay, those assays, many of which are not maybe as robust yet, and you can get the same or similar outcome time and time again. And not just I, I can get it or my lab, I can send it to you guys, and you should get the same, the same type of response. And certainly for us, at least in the past with some of our engineering approaches, things we did early on, um, one of the most valuable sorts of things we did was collaborate with external people and share those methods very early on. So uh, Peter's Answers Lab, so I know you guys have Peter on recently. He was one of the first and earliest collaborators, a really great you know, colleague and, and just supporter early on. And it was interesting, one of the things we found was we were making these microparticles, we were putting them inside of aggregates, we were trying to change local morphogen distribution. And Peter had a postdoc that was had just developed the Agriwell technology and we needed a better way to aggregate and he thought saw the particles and wanted to do stuff. So it started with the two of us at posters at a conference together discussing this and then we were collaborating. But we found out in the midst of that, that you know if we took our particles and we dried them before we shipped them, because we thought that was an easier way to ship them and then they rehydrated them on their side, that screwed up the process. We still don't know why that did. But the double the double drying process, mm. they didn't work as well. And that kind of subtlety we never would have picked up on because in our lab, we never had to do that or we didn't have to dry them in the the twice because we weren't shipping them outside of there. So little things like that, I would say, came up as robustness. I still don't know the, exactly what changed. We could never figure it out. It was just one of those sort of like, all right, if we change this, now it goes back to working again. But, those were the kind of tests like if you really think you have something share it with others and certainly now in the bioarchive age i think it's it's an opportunity to get things out there sooner and get a placeholder and get people to test these that may help with you know not waiting a year two years when you're trying to wait out an entire sometimes review cycle on a paper to find out if there is like some some key uh, flaw that maybe is just because like the water in San Francisco has yeah. uh, lacks the minerals that it does in in New York or or somewhere else. Like you hear these stories throughout science all the time. Um, you may not always find that it's that specific of a of a solution, but you really want to find out if that's if there's some key determinant that you're overlooking in in, in any of the systems. I think.
1: So, part of that element of robustness and kind of on the topic of translation, you have to use the right model system, right? And ideally, you would want to use multiple model systems so that you can validate whatever discovery that you make. And so that perhaps, you know, it's easier for you to facilitate that kind of cross lab collaboration as well. And we kind of talk about it a lot on the podcast how like the two-dimensional cell culture model system that everybody's using is kind of artificial when it comes to especially like mimicking human development like we talked about you know your study with uh with uh machine learning and how that was done mostly in a a two-dimensional context and you know i do ips culture in in 2d for the most part these days everybody's starting to shift to organoids and 3d tissue modeling and that and tissue constructs uh so there's definitely a, a push towards that and part of your lab is actually focused on engineering 3d stem cell microenvironments that might be able to better better mimic embryonic development. And so maybe they could be a better better model system. So what's missing when it comes to actually engineering the best possible stem cell microenvironment to study human development? Because you know of course human development happens in three dimensions, right?
2: Right. And 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 I'm glad you picked up on that I mean most of our lab and our focus has been towards the 3D types of modeling. And and one of the one of the reasons that we went back to 2D almost in a sense for like that type of study. Was more technical limitations. We wanted to do like a throughput and a screening type of thing as we were starting, and and as you guys probably know, like imaging. So while there are better imaging tools out there, and we use like light sheet, for example, to analyze a lot of our 3D constructs, and we get much better data out of that than anything we had gotten in years past. For you know, again, a lot of optical, technicals, light scattering reasons. Um, what we can't do is we can't do like. A 96 well plate really fast or or do a bunch of conditions. It, like we would tie it up for a week and it would be just, you know, you'd be just going so slow. So what we've now looked at is like where can we sort of like take advantage of something like a 2D system, maybe to try and get like some general rules, how would cells behave or not, and then use that as a way to say, okay, there's some interesting hits or things here. Let's translate that or transfer it to our 3D system with some ability, maybe not you know, 100% accuracy, but sort of what would we predict? What do we think should happen if we do this? Or if we were to select a subset of conditions to examine first, which one should those be? Um, and that has really been helpful as a way to go forward. So what do I think is missing? So I'm gonna sound heretical with a lot of the, and I'll <laughs> say this honestly, with, with um, the tissue engineering as a whole group. And that is that I am not a huge fan of, of uh, material scaffolds Mm. Um, which which I will say, and even the hydrogels have their utility for certain things, but the the message to me has been over time, get out of the way of the cells. And the classic approaches and why they, a lot of them have not yielded uh, demonstrable tissue level success, is because the material's getting in the way, and it was never there in the first place, if you look at development. Mm. So <laughs> I've been swayed by this much more uh, either what we call minimal materials, minimally manipulative sort of environments where you still can manipulate properties. Our microparticle approaches were intended to really change local morphogen gradients, but we wanted them to be somewhat physically masked. We only put in small amounts. We didn't We, we didn't want them to get in the way of the cell adhesions. We didn't want them to sort of change how the aggregate or a tissue as a whole is starting to form. We just wanted them to serve as like a reservoir, uh, initially as a source, but then we found out they probably focused or they worked better as a sink <laughs> because we were making them to uh, engineering them to bind lots of things and then when you look at the fact that the cells are producing many of these factors as well then what you end up doing is that all of our in, the, in those early studies we called vehicle controls microparticles alone inside of an aggregate they always had an effect the baseline was different every single experiment with every different material and that took us like geez, i don't know again like several years till finally that dawned on us oh wait a second, <laughs> you know. There's this, you know, we've been trying to make them do these things, and we're sort of ignoring one half of it, and that is what the cells are making and what they're trying to do. Mm. So I think that kind of appreciation, it's not that it's not there, it's just that classically, a lot of approaches in a lot of tissue engineering came from the material side. And I would say that to engineer morphogenesis, it's it's to me much more about what is the intrinsic program and how are the ways that you can trigger it. And also then get it to be more directed because the cells want to go in some of these directions. And to me, it's you don't need to have such a top down engineering approach to like constrain or confine them. You want them to have sort of just minimal sort of cues and then let them go do their own thing. Because that's when sort of to me, the beauty of things really manifests.
0: Yeah, it is a beautiful process. You kind of can imagine as you plant a seed and then nature takes over. Right. And, uh, you know, as you said, you kind of want to get out of the way of the cells and, a lot of people might argue that you're, you're in the way of the cells as soon as you take them out of their environment and try and recreate whatever you're trying to recreate in, a, in vitro or what have you. Um, then you also hear, you know, there's so many pearls of wisdom coming from your lips here today. You he also said, as <laughs> Chuck Murray said, I don't really be, love that. <laughs> be uh, pragmatic, you know, be pragmatic. <laughs> and it makes me think, you know, at the end point here for a lot of us is just organs, right? It's tissues. Yeah. It's organs. It's a therapeutic output. Um and again, you said that there's limitations. You're going back to 2D for some things. Yeah, of course, pragmatism. Um, there may be limitations of what we can do in terms of making tissues and, and organs in vitro. Are alternatives like the humanized pig for organs, or the chimeric pig for organs? Do you think those are viable? Or do you think that ultimately, you know, despite all this academic effort and important knowledge that we're gaining, we may the end game may be just growing organs in pigs?
2: That's a great. Cra- I mean. Clearly, the the results they have gotten and achieved with that it may not be possible for every organ, they're really striking. I mean, I remember the first time seeing it with it was at the mouse rat level, and they could right. show yeah. how you could just knock out a gene and you get the whole organ. I was like, Jesus! It almost again seemed too simple at the time, but there was a lot more. There was a lot more going on than just that, obviously. But I think the fact that it is, it is it has borne itself out to larger animal models to multiple organs. Again, it says that there's a basis there, so we can't overlook it. What I would say I think is that now you know that you you create other challenges, other problems. So I think that clearly shows that you can get a humanized tissue that, which maybe for immunologic purposes might might transplant better, might. But um, in all in all, or most of the examples so far that I'm aware of, you still have an um, uh, vasculature, <laughs> which mm. is typically coming from the host. Mm. And in that case, my. I'm not a great immunologist. (laughs) My suspicion or fear is gonna be that that's where it's gonna cause the most problems. And the other part is, one thing that it does do is that if you've grown it and it has that native architecture, say like the heart one. So if you can disconnect by the major arteries or major blood vessels and reconnect, that's a huge success. Because the problem is when you have massive amounts of tissue and they need vasculature throughout and you need from capillary beds up to those vessels, you know, that's where the approaches of you know I'm going to grow a big avascular or non-vascularized tissue and get this thing to transplant. I just don't think they're I don't think they're going to pan out. Mm. Um, the approaches that I've seen that take a large biomass, but it's transplanted as small amounts that l- enable more rapid integration of vasculature. That seems to have more you know uh, viability, I guess, or lack of a better term, um, uh, to me. So the the approaches that I you know, always give credit to. Uh, uh, Michael Sefton, Alison Mcguigan from University of Toronto for the term modular tissue engineering, and I'm sure that you know others have used and stuff. But that really captured to me is that you know, and thinking of it from you know, then from even how we've approached things, we're not trying to make necessarily a huge organ in the lab. We're trying to make maybe lots of small amounts of tissue that are well controlled, and our biomass, if it's scalable in a suspension system, then you could increase it as needed. Again, that that is a uh, that is more than just an academic exercise, mostly because of cost and expense. I mean, when we do things in Hundred milliliter reactors, you know that's big for academic labs. And you, you turn to anybody in industry, and they're just going to laugh at you because <laughs> that's that's not even their starting culture. You know, that's just like you're just playing in the kids' end of the pool. That's nothing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you you have to kind of know where you're at in those. But I think for academic ones, to show that you can take something start it in a small thing and and maybe even grow it up, and and the product or the the what you've constructed is a, is equivalent, then um, then I think you've got something there. So. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think vascular is certainly one that you always hear about. And honestly, our lab doesn't work on it. It's probably just like the immunology. I'm hoping somebody else fixes that problem. We'll work on the other ones in the meantime. <laughs> but, but, uh, but one thing about it is interesting that I, I, I keep pointing out, because we've seen it in a couple of our examples, and I, I point out to others, is it's really common when, as soon as you have a, a slate of organoid speakers that the first thing they, they tell you that you have to have is vasculature. And to the best of my knowledge, in almost all of the systems to date, ex vivo they don't (laughs) Hmm. they don't have vasculature and some of these are growing and be and becoming larger than what at least mass transport laws would tell you is possible so the paradigms we were taught in or i was taught in tissue engineering uh which was a long time ago uh but even today and things i would tell you you know sort of the the oxygen transport and other nutrient limits limitations some of these things are, are they're surviving in spite of, they're growing beyond those limits. So the, the other flip side of that is that's interesting to me because what is that what's the sign? I, I always just say I don't know why it's happening, but I would love to know how or could we figure out a way with that, because it might give us new insights like how could we grow bigger tissues if at least you know, in, in vitro to a point that could get closer to a transplantable size? I don't know. Hmm. But it certainly sort of defies convention. On the flip side, you you always get that critique that well, that's not it's non-physiological, therefore it's not real, you know, kind of thing. But if I go back to the pragmatic argument, well, how big of a tissue can I grow, and is it functioning or not? Like it's a different it's a different sort of thing. So um, I think that the thing that's intriguing to me from this is if you can study these and understand the processes then the ability to translate it maybe in a different approach maybe in a in a, a viral mediator or gene therapy approach or something like that a molecular based approach on host cells you know the stem cells could be the are the stepping stone the organoid model is the tool that you can use to postulate something that you wouldn't have otherwise and then move forward with it this could be a, you know re, either reprogramming strategies or reprogramming elements of cells not just their fate but their capability those are those kinds of things to me also are an attractive uh, translational route that i think that while, while organoids have yet to do that, I think that they offer that. as I can see that in the sort of down the line. Things that you would see in that, because that you, you can study them for maybe months at a time and mm. watch them develop. And then you can make perturbations with certain genes or something else and see what changes you can make. That gives you, again, some direction, I think. And, and those are the things I think that would be lacking for maybe new types of, um, more generally speaking, regenerative medicine strategies. Mm.
1: So speaking of cardiac tissue engineering, you uh, did your postdoc with Chuck Murray at the University of Washington. Of course, Dr. Murray is a world leader when it comes to all things cardiac regenerative medicine. So naturally you're pretty in tune with the, the myocardial repair field where we can introduce you know, stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes and other cardiac cells to maybe restore a cardiac function after a myocardial infarction, right? I know a lot of folks are working on cardiac patches, like for example, Nanad Bursak at Duke. Mm-hmm. Uh, to toss in another Duke name, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, of course, there's some, like, rumblings of clinical trials down the road as well. So where are we when it comes to using tissue engineering approaches like these patches for myocardial repair?
2: Yeah. Again, here's where I'm going to shoot myself in the foot, but I'm not a huge patch fan. And I'll t- I'll tell you why in general it's not. I think they are great model systems. I think, like, for example, the NADS work to get engine tissue that I know that they're using now for, for genome editing thing. Get functional readouts. It's really, really good work. Um, the problem, if you want to go to it and look at the disease, the dead, the dead tissues in the middle of the heart wall, and with, without fail, the, you know, Melissa Mil- 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 at University of Toronto is maybe the one who's looked a bit at sort of an unfolding-like strategy, tissues that they can make that they can inject through a catheter. And but even in, the, in a muscular wall or in an infarct environment, that's going to be more difficult than when you can just show you can do it like in solution. Um, so, you know, when I was working with Chuck, we, we, I made some patches. They were very thin. They were crappy compared to anything you could get by today's standards. But we could get them onto a heart. So that part was great. I had this cool <laughs> little picture of them attached on the surface of the heart. And then, and then I looked at them with the histology and said, this thing's not even close to where it should be. Hmm. Like, And I have no idea how it's going to get there. And then on the flip side, you have the cell injection straight into the heart wall. But you've got a lot of problems with that. So there's clearly a need for a hybrid approach of some kind. Um, I think, that, again, that's where, you know, the opportunities for microtissue formation that can be in, delivered into a wall might accelerate, might improve engraftment. Um, but I think the reason, like, for example, that those aren't being pushed yet is, I think while there's been a lot of preclinical studies, and Chuck and, and you know, the people that have pioneered those, the next thing that needs to be done is to show that, you know, if you can get enough cells into the tissue, regardless of how you get them there, or, or that, that they do have a, dem- a demonstrable, significant Clinical impact. Once that that I think threshold or barrier is crossed, then it motivates the need to come back with, okay, so now we have a delivery issue, right? Mm-hmm. But why solve the delivery issue if you don't know for sure that those cells or that construct or that composition of matter is going to solve the problem that that it is? It's still it's still while the data is encouraging, that has yet to be demonstrated, and that's different, I think, especially even for the heart than. Uh, than the dopamine, uh, dopamineergic neurons. They already know from from fetal stem cell trials. If you can get some of those cells in, you can get a clinical benefit hmm. in there. Now the source of cells has changed, and some of the mechanisms. But largely, like that's that I think sets that precedent for what what's the goal or what's the goalpost. And and I think similarly for you know uh, pancreatic islets. We know that you can get them from cadavers. You know you can do this. You can you can get some short term maybe resolution. So that if you can get something that responds appropriately, you might have a long long term life you know changing um, outcome in those kind of patients. The heart is is interesting because it's still up for grabs. I would argue. Mm-hmm. I mean we we think we know that yeah muscle's gone so therefore you need to remuscularize, but how do you do that? <laughs> and you know I think there's a, a lot of things. A lot of things that still have to be answered to demonstrate that that is the appropriate um, uh, repair mechanism, and I'm not saying it's not. I just think that we're just we're like we're just getting close to it now. So I think that might be one of the critical things we need to know because then it informs well what kind of tissue do you need to make? Do you have the right cells or not? I mean, we're as guilty as anyone else. We've looked at you know cardiac tissue with different types of fibroblasts and then with some endothelial cells and and done you know single cell analysis on these phenotypic effects and. Yeah, we we can hopefully publish that paper on it soon. (laughs) But um, is that going to can I can I confidently at this point say that that is or is not going to give, um, particularly for regenerative medicine, or does that even make a better cardiac tissue construct? Um, So that that I think is where you know there's still some big gaps that a few of these like maybe big home runs like something like the clinical trial working backwards will inform us. Of A, what works or what's sort of the critical number that we need to exceed, and also what's still missing. Because I think we're inevitably, I think uh, for that one in particular, a multicellular complex organized uh, tissue, it's going to be quite miraculous if just the injection of a single cell type is enough to kind of rescue the whole situa- situation. It's probably, I mean, the good part of that one, what's, there, is no, there is no therapy today, at least for the remuscularization part. So the the argument, especially that you know you can't do worse except rupture, <laughs> which is not good. But if that's sort of the bar you're you're entering in at, then that sort of at least again gives you a, a clear entry point. But after that, it'll become these refinement things and how much is how much more do you have to do to the next level to to get there? Um, cardiacs a good one because you I always tell like with engineers, if you're engineering a system that's like 90% um, efficiency or whatever kind of performance metric you've only got 10% to improve so so making a big jump is going to take a lot of work hmm. when you're at the like 10% level get in <laughs> it's like the it's like the buy low sell high you know yeah. like you see those problems get in because you know even if you if you make it 40% or 50% better well that's four to five times better than it was before and now you're up into a range that's you know maybe has some functional significance so I think that's you know sort of the analogy is that's kind of where we're at, but we need we're going to need these trials that are being pioneered, like said by Chuck and several other people, um, internationally to kind of tell us you know is that the right strategy or not. And it's hard because it's a lot of work. You know he's devoted I know 20 plus years and a lot of work to just get to to ask that question. And so it's 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 going to be challenging not just for that but for many other obviously stem cell related diseases
0: yeah there's a there's a lot of stem cell there are a lot of diseases where stem cells have relevance, because you know stem cells can become pluripotent, stem cells can become every tissue in the body, right? But you named the big three there uh, in your answer diabetes, parkinson's, and of course cardiovascular disease, heart disease, heart attack. and why? Because you know those are the big three because those are visible. It's a huge unmet need, of course, but there's also a whole element of the optics, the optics of those diseases for the public. It's very important, and uh, you know, now that you're in California, I think you've seen firsthand in part how that plays out with the Prop 71. It's yeah. it's really important to get the public on board, right? And uh, that drew a lot of attention to the cause, but it seemed uh, about midway through or so that that not necessarily public sentiment, who knows what the impetus there was, but there was a shift in kind of the sure. guidelines, and the steering committee was placing more of emphasis on funding projects that are with more near-term translational impact, things that were going into trials. Do you think just fundamentally there's, a, there's increased pressure on stem cell research scientists to demonstrate an impactful therapeutic output of pluripotent stem cells? Or in the lab, is it still just business as usual? Um, whether or not the public is, is becoming maybe disenchanted or fatigued with this whole, you were gonna you know cure heart disease.
2: Yeah, oh, it's it's great, and and I think it's one of the things that I certainly um, underappreciated when I started in this field. But as you said, I think I think the part that I've been the positive part on it is a sense of urgency, and the urgency that comes with the fact that like literally I I see it all the time, and we haven't done as much yet patient disease work as some of my colleagues here at Gladstone, but but they have, and so these people get really actively engaged and involved in this because you can literally take their disease. And put it into a dish. You can perhaps make a perturbation or attempt something that would be therapeutically relevant, and see if there's corrective measures. I mean, that I, I, there's a, obviously a lot of reasons. One, iPS didn't exist when, like I said, like 15 years ago when I started, and the other, obviously, just the the say add them, but certainly the the reemergence of of genome and uh, gene gene editing and genome engineering in general has just radically changed the landscape. So now things that, you know, seem so far off are extremely tangible. And I've had it in personal thing, you know, a a friend from high school whose daughters, unfortunately, have one of these rare uh, neurological neurodegenerative diseases, and their kids will often die before, you know, the age of five. And unfortunately, both of her daughters were diagnosed with something that their both parents are, you know, uh, uh, carriers. Mm. So, you know, on the phone talking to them and realizing that they're looking for a drug therapy and they you know they became very active and motivated to do this but i was sitting there going well this person does that step and this person does this and yeah then you just need access to the facility like it's a matter of obviously you know either funding and 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 logistics but it's not technically impossible and i think that that changed my thinking entirely about some of these and then also you start to think of well other, you know, the neither of those two the, uh, technologies really were even um, were even known at the time Prop 71 was voted on. Because mm. <laughs> I remember, because I was interviewing for faculty positions in 2004, they're telling me about this proposition. And, oh, it might bring a lot of stem cell, you know, related money and resources to the state, and i was like, well, it's a maybe, and it sounds okay, but I'm not sure I should you know base a decision on that. And I obviously I didn't. I was Georgia Tech first and then moved out here later, but but through that it you know it certainly made it clear to me just you know uh, how much that could move things and how much it 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 later drew me back to california because it was such a hub of stem cell on all fronts and so for me at least i guess going back to that, the urgency i think is a good thing and i think it's not bad for trainees to see some of that that you know some things are going to take a while and we need to communicate that better because the the challenge was as they the and the reason they made the shift midstream my understanding or my perspective they made a promise of delivering on disease in ten years, hmm. and initially they, you know, took some time to to um, develop a, a portfolio. But sometimes developing that por- portfolio for things where the mechanisms aren't known, well, right there you're gonna you're gonna be working on that probably a while. Versus if you have something where at least the cell type is identified, the so, Parkinson's, you know what type of cell you need to make, and you know what that cell needs to be capable of producing. Um, pancreatic. You also need to know what to make. Turns out, maybe I hate to evaluate one versus another harder, hmm. but there's more complexity because again, that that cell is regulated by a lot of the neighboring cells, and you need the whole structure and all of these things to to kind of get to fruition. Um, so, those kinds of insights that not all are diseases are the same, and and using that, I think that that also what changed in the middle. No one was talking about ocular diseases, <laughs> right? And in this was not that was not the top of say. Prop seventy one in CERM's list is we're gonna we're gonna cure blindness because people are like you know that that's not um, considered as much of a life threatening as much of a convenience uh, uh, by many people and again that that's not necessarily true it can be very debilitating for people but but it's not on the same sort of mortality related scale people Mm. don't uh, directly die of blindness Mm. but they certainly will of a heart attack and heart failure or you know being diabetic and the complications so but what changed well you needed successes and you needed accessibility and you needed a cell type that they could make you needed something you could manufacture you needed something that you could you could do in GMP it's also attractive because you don't need a large number of cells so if you start with small scale methods you might actually produce enough for a clinical trial but if you want to do that for heart attack guess what your 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 small-scale methods are not going to cut it hmm. so you've sort of added layers and at the start of this or at least you know 10 and 15 years ago when people had to pick and choose these it was definitely based on what are the biggest ones uh, where where can I make a difference if it was successful and you know you they picked all the big markets and what has gradually changed over time is if you want to make an impact you know you need a single before you go for the home run <laughs> um, and so go for the singles and and have a couple of those, because that could support the field as a whole and the viability of the field. And I think that that has shifted people's focus. So also the idea of using IPS, if not as a curative therapy itself, but as the basis for, say, genome editing uh, uh, approaches. If we can show that you can correct your gene in a dish, now it's just a matter of making that virus or getting that thing into you, perhaps. It's obviously a lot more than that. But your cells could be affected, and they might be corrected in some in some functionally or physiologically meaningful way. And if that's true, now you have motivation. And those are things also that we know FDA with rare diseases. You're, more, much more likely to be able to get that into a person. Are you um, carving out a market for that? No, probably not. The, you know, from uh, insurance and others, you you're probably treating small, small cohorts. Um, and, and for something like the ocular disease, you you know it might not move the dial as much. But for pluripotent as a whole, I think it. I think it will. And then you see that from both uh, investments in, in companies and other things that have happened over time. So that's that. I think is what happened is that there was you know the need for it, and they certainly started to in, invest in things that had a clinical basis. But many of those were not necessarily directly out of sort of what CERM was initially envisioning. Was sort of my take. But they. It was definitely a movement to try and follow up on that promise. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think throughout, you know, just educating, because even as scientists, we always like to say, right, how far is something off? Five, ten years. Everything's five, ten years off. (laughs) It's just that—that's that's that's what we're like, I don't know, trained to say, five, ten years, right? (laughs) But when you sit down and really try to go back and do some of these, as I had to do with actually someone who's, Business guy, philanthropically related, but he was—he was really good. You could tell, like he, he wanted the plan and, and the initial answers of these that were kind of vague, those weren't good enough. He wanted to know exactly how many months it's going to take. And when you sit down drawing that out and you realize that you're—you're you're usually doing it with best case scenario, everything if it worked is this, then you start to see some realistic timelines. And and I think that's where um, hopefully we could find better ways to communicate that. But I think many of us, myself again included, until you've actually been forced to do it or you have a project that that requires that, um, you don't really maybe fully appreciate. It. And then that's sometimes often just on the academic side. When you go to the commercialization industrial side and you start factoring those things in, um, that again is where the timelines just can become you know quite much longer. Or or you know, and you have to start to think if we want these to be realities, then how do you? Where can you shorten things? Because some things can be
1: shortened and others can't. Hmm. So it's definitely an exciting time for translational stem cell biology in California. And you talked about CIRM. We've got the next... Iteration of CIRM on the horizon, hopefully. Knock on wood. Right? <laughs> um, so, kind of on that topic, your lab has been at the the Gladstone the Gladstone Institute in San Francisco for the last few years. You know, you're at Georgia, Georgia Tech before that, and of course, the Gladstone is a is an absolute powerhouse when it comes to all things like stem cell biology, cardiac biology, and regenerative medicine. And in fact, the director of the Gladstone, Dr. Deepak Srivastava, who's like one of the best basic cardiac biologists in the world, actually recently became pres of the iscr the international society for stem cell research so the gladstone has had its fingerprints on the field of stem cell biology for a long time right so what's it like working at the gladstone and why do you think the gladstone has become such a powerhouse in biomedical research
2: um first i would say so what it feels like this is the way i described it and this is going on five years mm-hmm. this feels like a paid sabbatical to me it's <laughs> i don't want to put it out there like too but it really does i mean uh it's just there's new stuff all the time. Um, moving to a so leaving a, a a tenured full professor position to go to a non tenured private research institute, you know, by most of my academic colleagues, I got this like you're crazy look, and and I said, yeah, but how am I gonna like? To me, in the argument or the 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 struggle I was having was there's so many things I feel like I want to do, and I, and and it's not. To be negative to the environment, it was. There were so many positives around it, but there were things missing, and and strong stem cell biology was one of them. And colleagues that had that, you know, that had similar sort of focus around that in different directions, but there was a commonality. So that was really attractive to me for that. And and I think what has um, kept them because we're relatively small in size when you look at the numbers and investigate stuff, but it is that I think intensity, a bit of the, the term that ever do sort of an urgency, like you know that we're It's not rushed, but you really want to try and push things. You really, you know, you do things and you also evaluate it from the science of, and I guess I was like this before individually. I tell my students, you know, there are many projects you can look at and say, okay, can we can do that, but how many other people could also do that? Or, yeah, that's the next step, and that's what everybody's going to work on, but what's the step beyond that? And when you start thinking like that, that sort of that nature of just being ambitious, like not, not that it's not good enough, but sort of where do you want to go? Where do you want to push? Where do you think things need to be moving? And, and will you take some of that personal risk? So an interesting thing, and I think one thing that that maybe speaks to a general character trait, at least of many of the investigators that I've seen here, is we just underwent a strategic plan process at like Glass over last year and, and coming out with sort of six core values of it, things that are held sort of like as, as core to the central tenets of it and of the community. And um, uh, take risks was like number two of the ones. And and I think when you look at people and their careers and things, I mean, it's it's easy now to look back and say what Shinya Amanaka did and say, you know, uh, oh, yeah, great success and celebrate all those because it, it transformed a field and, you know, and, and what he did. But how many people honestly were cynics and skeptics even when he first presented it? I, I challenge and ask people that because I was at the ISSCR meeting when he presented it for the first time. And you just get a sense sometimes from questions being asked and other things like some people at that point were not convinced. Mm. He wasn't being, you know, celebrated as the leader. And the so there was some risk he took, both not just scientifically about it, because other people, I think, were you know, history will say other people were taking similar kinds of risks to try and figure out similar kind of question. But, you know, he had to really put it out there. And he put it out there as soon as he could in a pre-bioarchive day, in a time, again, when he was— a two author paper him and his grad student i mean how many how many or yeah grad student for um, postdoc? yeah grad, i can't remember now i think it's grad but i think it was grad student yeah how, I think it was grad student still so point um, but you know how, how how many people do that right and and the general academic advice of them a little bit they'll tell you don't do those things don't mm. here's the safe route here's the things you got to do but look back and i think when it's been to like scientific heroes of mine um, certainly, I've put you. But a lot of people, what I've, what I've, what I've talked to them or listened, and you pick up on things. They can all tell the story of like the grant proposal of the idea that got rejected, and they can list the summary statement and say all these really rude things that people told them about how it would never work. And all, like everybody has the not everybody, many people have those stories. So that was a commonality. But it was the fact that they like, in spite of that, they kept going because either they, they weren't just le- being led by their personal belief too much, they were doing it with that data-driven sort of science. There were things here, there was something happening. I think that's the safety net. You don't want to get too enamored of your own ideas, that you just stay committed to it when all the data coming back, like the critical experiments, are telling you that it's not working. (laughs) But if you can see the hints through things, and you can see that there's reason to keep moving a few steps ahead, then follow that. Because then on the back end, those are where these big, oftentimes big discoveries are. So I, I think Yeah, that to me is sort of like, you know, what has it been? I think that take a little bit of risk, but do it calculated. Push things as best you can with that. And then I think amongst that, you know, that certainly um, my colleagues here, you know, that they have a similar attitude. Yeah, 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 that could, Bruce Conklin is one of my favorite guys here. And Bruce is great at this. I love putting my proposals and stuff in front of him because he will be brutally honest about it, about even if he thinks it's interesting, like he'll just tell me. And I like the fact that he doesn't like Not everything he says is like, oh, that's a great idea. That's good. That's good. You can hear that from friends and stuff. No, he's like, why would you do that? <laughs> and, and, and I love that. And, and as a result, he's been a great collaborator. We've got a, uh, and then one together. We collaborate a lot on the kind of things. The 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 student was describing Ashley was co-advised by the two of us, and it was oftentimes too. We might give her conflicting advice and stuff. So, you know, she had to figure out like what was what was going to be right for her to do in those. But I think that that's the kind of value is like that openness, that honesty about the science, and really also challenging each other to think about, you know, you could do that, but what what is really going to be the the impacts if you do? So,
0: come to the Gladstone where they are brilliant (laughs) and mean. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. No, I mean brilliant and constructive. Um, You know what I think about when you're telling me this, though? It's it's a little. I don't want to end on a sad note, but like there's all these every single. Uh, Nobel Prize winner, I think will say something like you just said, you know, risky, and they have the benefit when you get to the Gladstone and you say, yeah, risky, risky. But our, there's got to be some scientists out there who just took the risky, you know, good ideas, just ended up not being true, high risk, failed, and you never hear from these people. They just went yeah. away. So think yep. about that. Not only is the road to great success in a single career paved with all these failures, but the the road to success in science as a field in aggregate for all of us is paved with all these, you know, failed careers. I mean, what a down Oh, <laughs> I,
2: No, it, it, is, and it is, it's sad, like you said, because a lot of other things can get in the way, navigating that and navigating the systems. And a lot of those folks, you know, that, that so successful folks you've mentioned and others is sometimes, you know, there's other things beyond your control and, it, and you've had the right idea. And was it the right time? Um, another great phrase that a friend of a, friend, a colleague of mine um, introduced me to was vintage proposals. And she used this because she said, it's like, when you write a grant proposal several years ahead of its time and you Mm -hmm. submit it and, you know, nobody likes it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's mostly because like either you have pushed it or you've gone too far, you've, you've broached people's, uh, uh, comforts. And she said, you put it on the shelf and let it, like, age like a nice wine, and then later you pull it back out. Now it might be ready for that crowd. So this is a friend of mine, Linda Griffith at MIT, who used that. And I, I tell my colleagues all the time, like, we get one back like that, a proposal, and I'm like, we'll just put it on the shelf. We'll let this one age for a bit and see when we can come back out because, you know, those are other factors, other things beyond your control. And and as you as you allude to, I mean, some – and. We hear the successes, but like the you know, there's a lot of the the things that don't work, the failures for that. And it, it there's great knowledge gained in there as well that would benefit, as you said, the science community as a whole. Finding ways to extract that better, I think, is is valuable. And and as I mentioned before, just to think of it again, like Bioarchive isn't the solution for that either, but it does at least start to provide repositories of information for things that sometimes may not be publishable. And that's going to be the next change. Most people, I think, are in the habit of deposit, submit. Mm-hmm. What about when we deposit and we don't submit? Because we we as a you know PI or lab, be like, yeah, it's valuable information, but it's it's not gonna meet the the current standard of any journal because it doesn't have some new insight. It just tells you something that's not going to work or something lots of people could find those things valuable as well as opposed to normally coming up in a conversation at a meeting on the side or something like that
0: yeah well let's put it on the shelf i'm just about to go (laughs) through all my files of failure (laughs) see if i can extract some good out of there but let's end on an upside here go a little bit outside of your scientific career for a minute tell me something good man tell me a great non-science book that you're reading or have read and share that with our listeners would you sure
2: sure um so being being Duke guys, you might appreciate this one. I I I uh, frequently I still keep. I was checking it out. when I was thinking about uh, things or something. I saw on the shelf is I have like four or five copies of uh, Coach K's his first book, Leading with the Heart. Mm. And this started with purely you know I was a basketball fan, thought this guy's great. What is his, what are his secrets? What I didn't appreciate was reading that. I think before I became a PI, and now the analogies keep piling up. You know, you manage a team of about on average ten to twelve people. They're not all gonna be starters at the same time, meaning you've got people just starting in the lab. You've got your senior people who you lean on heavily typically. Those are the ones you're presenting their papers. The other ones are sort of training underneath them. Within about a four or five year timeline, those people leave. So then there's gonna be rotation. So you wanna get the people behind to kind of learn the things, but they're not gonna be exactly the same. So you're always gonna have a changing team, a changing dynamic in the group. But yet, you want to keep the the quality attributes that are that make that team successful or that culture successful, and you want to see that spawn across sort of generations. So, you know, I I I always put out there, and and, I'm I am a huge Coach K fan, so like I can't put aside, but. But the parallels—the things he drew in that book about—because it's it's actually not sold in the sports section; it's sold in the business management section when you go mm. and look for it. So it's in amongst all these others, you know, about how to run companies and stuff. And that's I think why he probably wrote it because he he I think he got asked all the time for speaking engagements in the off season. But the parallels to me were striking. And so oftentimes I'll share that with my colleagues because it also gives an insight into—they know I'm a rabid Duke fan. They know from stuff <laughs> in the office and stuff. You know, it's the first, i get two comments. I've got my Duke stuff and my Chicago Cubs stuff. In the office, so those two things you're going to know right away where my allegiances are. But uh, when they learn more about his person, I think in learning that, like, what are kind of those those mentoring people? Where do you see those same kinds of principles, and how do you apply them? consistency and, and, you know, uh, just all kinds of stuff that I picked up. So that was one of my all-time favorites. And I think I get, I give it to people, especially trainees. It's sort of like, if you want other insights into why I do or don't do certain things, here's some parallels, but it's sort of on them. they have to like read it and figure, figure those out. Cause I'm not going to explain it to them. But I think that those who know me well, um, they probably don't need the book anyway, but they can figure it out.
0: Let me ask you this, since you've become such a big shot at a super elite Institute, like the Gladstone <laughs> Institute's. <laughs> Do you have any one and duns? <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs>
2: um, I did. I did have a postdoc one and done <laughs> who got a faculty <laughs> position. It was very time of life. Um, yeah. So I've had one, but I, I thought about that as well. This is also it's like more like the old lab culture, but. You know you, you know, you can't I, – I can't ever put limits on people. If they, can, if they can come in here and do it, I always tell them, look, you know, I'm not going to put – I don't tell you no. As often I tell my trainees, I will help with advice and things, but I rarely will say no to something. Mm. But I'm going to give you a, advice and help you try to weigh like – everything comes at an expense. Oh, you want to take time off? Yeah, that's fine. But you also want to get your thesis committee thing and things done. Like sometimes these things, you can't get them all to, together. But if you're better at time management you can do it all, I'm not going to put limits on you. Mm. so. But so no, no one and done's yet, but I'm probably too old school in my style. (laughs) (laughs) Or recruiting.
1: I've got a feeling that two types of people are going to skip this episode of the podcast, <laughs> one, non-basketball fans and two UNC fans. So
0: yeah, I'm
2: I, <laughs> I, anytime I'm, you guys are probably dealt with this too, is because the vast majority are also anti Duke, you know, usually it's like, Oh, you went to Duke and I'm yeah. like, yeah. And then one out of 10, 20, it's like, Oh, I did too. Or, Oh yeah. Yeah. My, you know, fan, everybody else I'm just assuming is the other way. <laughs>
1: I think that's totally fine. I'm totally cool with it. Coach K is the correct answer. And so, <laughs> so wrapping things up, what was your greatest or most memorable science revelation or surprise? So in other words, an aha moment.
2: Ah, uh, that's a good one. Um,
1: in the course of the
2: labs, I mean, certainly a PhD student. I saw some really cool things and was excited. But I think it just, I don't know. I'm also one of these, like, I'm always that sounds a bad way, waiting for the next thing, or I always think the next newest thing that we see somehow, you know, maybe trumps what we did in the past, but it's also because it was built on it. So the first time, <laughs> as simple as it was, actually the first time in our, our what turned out to be our lab's very first paper, um, was rotary orbital shaking culture. Something that is like, was not, the other labs had done, but it was our first paper. It was something we became known for, because we did a bunch of characterization work on it. But I remember we have been struggling with just, you know, ways to make things more uniform and some other stuff. And, the student was not doing it for that purpose and he he, you know, he did it I think three times before he even told me, which was typical in this student's fashion. Like he had to convince himself before he'd even tell me it had happened. But what he did, and he like said something, yeah, I think I think I've got something. I go down and look in the lab and I'm like, holy crap, how did you do that? Like what what yielded that? But there's been two others now more recently with like Organoid ones. And actually it was that same student, he was the one doing this early microparticle work and We found out later, this was uh, 2009, 2010, so almost, wow, almost a decade ago, um, that uh, what he had created basically looked like and had the same cellular organization architecture as a a mouse E6.75 blastocyst, two layers of cells with the correct polarity, the correct gene expression, everything we could do. We weren't equipped at that time to do a lot of the kind of analysis that we do more routinely now. That that would have been maybe a bigger paper, um, we weren't in the dev bio field, so we submitted to journals and they're like, get out of here because we were a bioengineering lab. We did biomaterials, which is where it got published. But looking back, it was probably our first organoid example, you know, and going back to look at that and what yielded it. And then more recently, we've had one, and hopefully this will be out soon, is, um, you know, I've said we've looked at probably where we've probably created I wish I could tally it accu- accurately. Like, how many billions of aggregates have we cultured <laughs> in our batch suspension ones over the years? And they're always round. They're just always round. And, and thermodynamically, and the rest of it they should be. There's no there's no energy or property that should make them non significantly non-round. Um, until we got these ones that basically you know, we call it the, the neural tails project. These things start sprouting in one direction. And they sprout a lot, and you get this elongation phenotype. And that was one that again, when somebody first brought to me, I had that, what are you doing? Like kind of like, what is this kind of thing? <laughs> And now we know we're, we're getting ready and we'll uh, be presenting it this month at a meeting and then we're, the paper should be hopefully out submitted that same week with with uh, how we're wrapping things up. That one definitely to me, because now it also said, okay, more than round balls is possible. <laughs> and up until that point, I was not necessarily convinced that we were ever going to get anything other than round masses of cells that sort of had internal structures. But I thought that that might be all we could get, that maybe again, there's these too many other layers of things but you know a fluke like that that happened because of two rotation students um initially and so that was also where we sort of had that well what what has everybody else been doing wrong why are these students getting this and nobody else has got this but mm-hmm. now a year later we understand and stuff so i think those would be that i've been continually amazed at sort of what the systems that we're working with are capable of and often with good exciting consequences every once in a while i think maybe that like uh uh um cautious wait what are, what are we maybe like how far are we pushing things and how far should we be pushing things that's something obviously we you know try to keep in, in the ongoing discussion as well and and uh to not sort of get stray into uncomfortable areas or things that you know something we didn't want to to necessarily do but it's hard we're right on that i would say we're right at that precipice uh, right along you're kind of towing that line all the time and so you just got to really be thoughtful about what you're trying to do
0: yes that's important you know, navigating. Uh, these fields with uh, sensitivity of course and as you said and you're alluding to it's amazing and I would have never thought uh that I would be still a relatively young man when we were able to ask these questions and, and as you also said I'll leave it to you to ask those questions I'm not going to do it so it's such a joy to talk to you Todd and uh <laughs> talk to others like you who are answering these tough questions thanks uh, again for joining us on the show today this has been a real fun fun time
2: it, uh, thank you guys so much this was really great
0: All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info@stemcellpodcast.com with feedback. Or you can suggest guests there, which we would love. Thanks for joining us for this episode, guys. This has one been Close to Our Hearts with Todd McDevitt. A great show, great episode. We'll see you in a couple weeks.